all engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to your favourite science programme, that is The Naked Scientist, which this week we are pre-recording and bringing you, as ever, the latest in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and now it's time to put your questions to a panel of experts in one of our Q&A shows. Coming up, we meet a Nobel Prize winner, discover where AI may be at play in our day-to-day lives and how the critters you share your house with might be more welcome than you think. We love to get to the bottom of your queries and questions, so if there's something that you've always wanted to know about science, technology and medicine, just send us that question to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, before we start sifting through the science, let's meet our panel this week. First up, we've got AI aficionado Cantor Dijal from the University of Cambridge. Do you actually work on AI? I'm a researcher on public perceptions and portrayals of artificial intelligence. So I look at the ways in which people are exposed to images, news, um, films and other kinds of fiction about artificial intelligence and how that shapes the way people think about AI and also how um, scientists and uh, AI programmers and developers think about uh, what they are creating. Are we any good at depicting it? Do people take away the right sorts of messages when they when they see things about AI on, on telly or on the news? Well, the interesting thing is that the ways in which people think about AI are shaped by stories that are so much older than the technology itself. I mean, if you look at films such as 2001, A Space Odyssey, or even The Terminator, those precede uh, current technologies by about half a century. Um, So, of course, they don't accurately depict the science because uh, the science has drifted so far away from it. Well, sitting next to Cantor is at least virtually speaking, Rob Dunn. He's uh, a North Carolina State University ecologist and his work focuses on the species that are around us in our everyday lives, right through from the bacteria that are in our guts and on our skins through to the insects that co-inhabit our homes with us. And Rob, you recently published a book. It's called The Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species. What's the point you're making in the book? So, so the key point is, is that even as we imagine futures that have far more artificial intelligence or far more technological, that we're still wed to the rest of the, the biological world. And so we still have to pay attention to the ways in which the biological world works. Just a simple example is that, that even if you think about astronauts in the International Space Station, those astronauts still get all of the microbes they depend on for digestion, for immune health, for much else from their mothers on Earth. Um, all their food still comes from Earth. All the, the microbes that their food depends on come from Earth. And so even when we think we're very disconnected from the living world, we're still very beholden to how it works. And so the book is really the it, it's an assertion that we need to remember to pay attention to all of these other species and what we know about how they relate to us. We brought up space. Sitting next to you, Rob, is Colin Stewart. And um, Colin's a space science guru. In fact, you've written about 19 books on the subject, haven't you, Colin? It's quite a prolific output on space science over the last decade or so. Yeah, it's, it's good fun. It's the thing I've been obsessed with since I was a kid, so to spend my time writing about it is it's not that much Writing about it, speaking about it. And a little bird told me that I think you're the first person on our programme to have an asteroid named after them. 
<laughs> yeah, I still think that's the, probably the coolest thing that will ever happen to me. Well, is it, is it actually called Colin Stewart, the asteroid? Yeah, it's 15347 Colin Stewart. I, I just love the idea of an asteroid <laughs> called Colin. Where, where is it? So it's a main belt asteroid. So it's between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It's about four kilometres uh, across. Oh, it's, it's not small. It's not like a speck of dust. It's a, it's a reasonably meaty asteroid. Which is why I don't want it ever to be on a collision <laughs> course with the Earth. Uh, well, last but not least on our list, also here this week, is Nobel Prize winner Lou Ignaro. Now, Lou is an erection specialist. Well, OK, let me qualify that. He discovered the chemical nitric oxide, NO, which is a critical signal which is involved in opening up of blood vessels, including those that you find in the penis. And this is work that led directly to the intervention that uh, is in the form of a well-known blue tablet. And as a result of that, Lou, you sometimes get called, I've heard, the father of Viagra. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I I don't mind that at all. I think that's really neat, and it, it definitely pinpoints the work. But I can tell you that when my mom was alive back then, she used to get very upset whenever she heard that. And she'd always say, son, why don't you tell them to stop saying that already? You know, Lou, um, I heard that Pfizer have produced a, a, a little sort of bottled liquid form of Viagra. Did you know about this? It's, it, it's coming out. It's, it's in a little bottle. It looks like one of those Tipex correction fluid bottles but you have to be really careful you don't muddle the two up otherwise you wake up with a massive correction <laughs> very good very good <laughs> uh, enough of my bad humor we better get on with our <laughs> q a show hadn't we now when we do these programs we like to keep everyone on their toes with a guessing game which of course you at home can play along with as well so the way it works is that i'll give you a sequence of clues across the program we'll kick off with a sound clue and hopefully there'll be enough information imparted that by the end you'll have worked out what this is so have a listen to this this is clue number one any any clues lou hmm well it just sounds like gas coming through a pipe on to my ears more clues coming up later on stay tuned now before we can actually understand um how a robot can think or, or how it can feel in the same way a person can. We need to get a better understanding, actually, what we mean by intelligence in order to understand artificial intelligence. And this is one coming your way, Cantor. How do we actually define intelligence, first of all? That's a great question to start with, and it's a surprisingly difficult one because there was one study recently which identified more than 70 different ways in which intelligence has been defined over the years, which is, of course, extremely unhelpful if you're trying to artificially reproduce it, if you're trying to build it, if you don't actually agree on what intelligence is. And so um, all kinds of tests were invented. They also very strongly depend on your culture, um, on how you grew up, what kind of resources, what wealth you grew up with. Now, trying to translate that to artificial intelligence gets really difficult because uh, artificial intelligence aims to reproduce something, well, hopefully, that is more like how a human in general or on average thinks and functions. Is that what we want, though? Because to my mind, you know, humans are pretty good at being humans. And I mean, some people obviously take the biscuit a bit, but on the whole, we're pretty good at doing what we do. But we've got flaws, we've got weaknesses. And that's where machines can help us rather than invent something that's basically more of us. Do we want more of the same? Or do we want something that's not going to be encumbered by the biases, by the difficulties, the intellectual constraints that humans seem to struggle with? 
That's a great point. Yes, in many ways, people are trying to develop technologies that um, are better than humans in some respects. But there is also for some researchers this end goal of at least being able to reproduce human intelligence and create something that is at least as good as as humans, being able to do the same kinds of things that the human brain can do. Did you want to come in there, Lou? Just uh, fascinated with this. Do you think that an artificial intelligence would invent Viagra? <laughs> I think that given the right information, yes. But, you know, what Kanta is saying, I think, is absolutely right. You need to start off first with trying to mimic what humans do instead of right away trying to make, uh, you know, the artificial intelligence better to have, a, a, you know, the robot or whatever uh, think better, think more outside the box. You've got to be able to duplicate what what we do. But I think after that, uh, you can then take a step further. And I think, yes, if the robot, I'm calling it that, I don't know what else to call it, has all the facts built in, has a good uh, knowledge base, then, you know, knowing what I knew, what I discovered, I think that artificial intelligence could have come up with the uh, answer and maybe even a better answer, maybe even a better chemical drug and do it faster. That is happening, isn't it? I mean, pharmaceutical companies are investing very, very hard in computer systems that can explore chemical space and find molecules yes. that look like they would be fit for, right. for doing a good job. I wonder, and it's a though, lot cheaper than random screening of, uh, you know, a thousand different chemicals absolutely. because there's no intelligence behind that. So with artificial intelligence, we can get right at the heart of the matter, so to speak. Well, I wonder if artificial intelligence could bake half as well as I hope you can, Rob, because we're going to talk about baking now. Now, making your own sourdough, of course, that's been big business during the pandemic. People are spending a lot more time at home. But its crucial ingredient is yeast, which has been around for thousands of years, hasn't it? The crucial ingredient in sourdough is actually a mixture. So it's, it's yeast and then different species of bacteria. And so the yeast are producing carbon dioxide, which makes the dough rise. And the bacteria are making it sour and producing all sorts of lightweight chemicals to add aromas and flavors. But the, the first use of yeast uh, goes back certainly 14,000 years. It probably was first used to ferment in China um, and then spread to the Fertile Crescent and then spread around the world from there. And so we've been using it for a long, long time. How do you know 14,000 years? That's a very long time. Well, so that's the oldest piece of bread anybody's found. The oldest uh, beer is about the same time period. And if we look at the yeast, the evolutionary tree, we also see a, sort of a branching in the tree that more or less maps to that same period of time. Probably as we make more discoveries, that, that time will push back farther and farther. And we're starting to think that some of our other ancestors from, may have fermented things. And some of the evidence from, from that comes from uh, capuchin monkeys. And some capuchin monkeys appear to have learned how to knock down fruits that they can't eat. And then to come back to them three or four weeks later after they've rotted and become a kind of like a simian kombucha. <laughs> right, so, so they, those, so they knew that this was a way of converting the indigestible into the digestible. Yeah, they figured out a series of steps that allowed them to produce a new product. When we consider yeast, I mean, I presume we as humans have exerted some degree of sort of evolutionary pressure on the microbial world, including things like yeasts, to make them do those sorts of jobs better for us, become better yeasts for brewing, become better yeasts for baking? We know that we've tended to favor for brewing yeasts that are able to survive the presence of lots of alcohol. 
But we also know that yeast, when, when it was moved around the world, that it was under different selective pressures in different places because people used it to make different things. And so what we're starting to see is that depending on where you look, you see different varieties of yeast in the same way that you might see different kinds of tomatoes. And then on top of that, what we've seen recently is that the industrialization of bread and beer production has favored varieties of yeast that aren't so good at producing wonderful flavors, but they're just really good at being consistent and working in an industrial context. And so that's a really strong selection pressure that's recently been documented. But it's a big evolutionary story. It's like Darwin's finches, except at the end you get beer. It's my favourite example of synthetic biology, that is the brewing industry. Well, we need to whip up into space now. Colin, you're up, because Dave has got in touch to say, if I jump up and down in the aisle of a double-decker bus, which is going along, why don't I end up down the back of the bus? Every time I jump, I just land in the same place. It's because you and the bus are travelling at the same speed. So before you jump, let's say the bus is doing 30 miles an hour, you're also doing 30 miles an hour. And so when you jump, you both travel down the road at the same rate. Um, If the bus were to accelerate, though, then you would end up towards the back of the bus. Newton's first law of motion, right, that something will, will remain at constant speed unless acted on by a force. I suppose it's sort of similar to the fact that when you take off in an aircraft and you're flying across the Earth's surface, because the atmosphere is moving at the same rate, you're not being left behind by the Earth. Because people often say, when I take off and the planet's spinning, the planet's going a lot faster than the plane is, so why doesn't the the, the plane just take off and hover and wait for the Earth to come round to the right place and then land again? And it's it's the same phenomenon, isn't it? The atmosphere's moving, so you're just jumping into something that's moving, and you were moving when you took off, so you just move alongside it. Exactly, and so the Earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour, so if you were to jump, the Earth is going to spin at 1,000 miles underneath your feet. Why don't you land in a different spot? Well, again, because you're already travelling at 1,000 miles an hour with the Earth when you, when you set off. So Here's the kicker then. You, you must have done that thought experiment when you were little, which is that you're in a lift and it suddenly starts to plummet towards the bottom of the building. I'll wait till it's just about to hit the floor and then I'll jump and then the lift will go smack and I'll be fine. Why won't that work? So I saw Mythbusters episode uh, about this about 15 years ago, but um, they tried exactly this where they had the, uh, the lift, they put their um, dummy in there and tried launching the dummy upwards right before the lift w- would hit the floor. The only problem was they kept launching the dummy faster and faster. And each time it wasn't enough, dummy would get smashed. And it turns out that in order to offset the force with which the lift hits the ground, you'd have to jump with the same force, but upwards, meaning that you'd have to jump high enough to be able to reach the top of the building from where (laughs) the lift started. That would just not be humanly possible. And also you'd smash your head into the ceiling of the lift. You'd decapitate yourself. You, You probably wouldn't break your legs. You'd just break your neck instead. So it wouldn't be terribly helpful. Go along with that, Colin. Yes, no, that sounds right. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials on iTunes.
Still to come, we'll find out about the relationship between dark matter and dark energy, the microorganisms that live on us and in us and probably outnumber us, and nitric oxide nasal sprays that might be able to fight off coronavirus. Wouldn't that be a thing? In the meantime, here is the next part of our Mystery Sounds game. This is where we give you a sequence of clues across the programme and you have to work out what this thing is. I told you it sounds like this. Here's your second clue. You'd only hear this in one place in the UK. So that kind of puts the lid on a whistling kettle, doesn't it? Cantor, what do you think we might be talking about? Any speculation? Oh, no, I was going to go for the kettle. Only one place in the UK. Does that mean that it has to be really high up somewhere, the wind howling around Ben Nevis? I have no idea. The wind around Ben Nevis. Right, we'll put that one on the list. More clues are coming up. Let's switch now to Lou Ignoro, who's the Nobel Prize winner in physiology or medicine in 1998. He discovered the crucial role played by the chemical nitric oxide in our blood vessels. Lou, take us back to that time then. So what was it you actually found? Uh, There's a drug around called nitroglycerin, which is used to uh, lower the blood pressure, to treat anginal pain. You know, when you have an impending heart attack and patients take nitroglycerin, it dilates the blood vessels. That action had been known since the Alfred Nobel dynamite factories back in the 1800s. But the mechanism of action was not known for over 100 years. And so being a chemist and a biologist, I looked at the chemical structure of nitroglycerin and thought, well, maybe our bodies metabolize nitroglycerin to something like nitric oxide, nitrogen dioxide, whatever. And maybe that would be the active principle that causes the vasodilation. So we did those experiments, and that's exactly what we found, that the active vasodilator ingredient that lowers the blood pressure and increases blood flow in nitroglycerin is a tiny molecule, NO, one atom of nitrogen, one atom of oxygen. Well, after looking at all of these actions, I thought to myself, my goodness, if this molecule were made in our bodies, it could serve as a tremendous protective molecule against high blood pressure, stroke, heart attack, and so on. In a number of different experiments, we were able to show for the first time that mammalian cells, uh, including humans, of course, human tissue, is able to produce this relatively simple gas called nitric oxide. That was the reason why I I was awarded the Nobel Prize. And how does Viagra come into it? Very simply, every nerve releases a chemical signaling uh, agent called a neurotransmitter that then interacts with the tissue that it innervates to cause an effect. So once we discovered that this uh, neurotransmitter was nitric oxide, then it all made sense because NO is a vasodilator. It causes vasodilation, engorgement of the erectile tissue to fill up with blood and on and on and on. And that's what the erectile response is all about. And uh, the FDA actually fast-tracked the development of this drug. And in 1998, sildenafil, with the trade name of Viagra, uh, was marketed. And going back to how all this began, you mentioned that the, the bomb industry were playing around with nitroglycerin. Did people really, therefore, who were working in the bomb industry, notice that their heart problems got better? Yes, absolutely right. In Alfred Nobel's factory, uh, what was noticed when the people came into work, for example, on Monday, were two things. One, 
Many of them got a tremendous headache because vasodilation of the arteries in the head can give you a migraine-like headache. But more importantly, working in Sweden was very difficult. There were a lot of diseases. Uh, the air was not pure. Many people uh, had angina, had impending heart problems. And what the workers noted is when they went into the factories on Monday morning, the, the heart pain, the arm pain disappeared, but came back on the weekend when they were home. So the, the physicians in the community recognized this effect and they traced it down to nitroglycerin. And within a, a few years, they were able to get tiny, tiny amounts of nitroglycerin, mix it with sugar, for example, uh, because otherwise it was too explosive by itself, put it in tiny tablets that people would take, put it under their tongue, these physicians discovered, and it would relieve angina. So that drug, which is marketed today uh, as nitrostat and others, was available in the 1870s. But as I said, the mechanism by which it works was not found until we did it in, in about 1980. You, you really <laughs> are the proper paid-up doctor no, then, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. Well, Dr. No, I, my wife suggested I be called Dr. No because she liked the James Bond movie and she was always in love with Sean Connery. So we agreed. Okay, we'll call me Dr. No. And even my license plate on my car in California says DR No, Dr. No. For, for nitric oxide, of course. Lou, thanks very much for that. Let's switch to Cantor. Now, and back to the question from NO to AI. Artificial intelligence, you, you see this all over the media, don't you? Why do the media seem to think it's an apocalyptic thing? Indeed, is it? There have always been in the oldest mythologies stories about people building thinking machines or intelligent objects that then got out of hand because they didn't get the right instructions or they took their commands too literally or they were too strong and uncontrollable. Um, any kinds of reason uh, that you could think that an intelligent machine could cause havoc has already been done 1500 years ago. But the people making these suggestions are not nutcases necessarily, are they? Because, I mean, Stephen Hawking said some pretty strong things about, about these sorts of technologies and said that they would be the death of us. So on the one hand, you have these stories of building super intelligent machines that might not think humans are worth hanging out with because of the track record that humanity as a whole has. On the other hand, there is just the limitations to uh, the kinds of things that we have been building so far. The massive flaws some of these technologies have turned out to have, but still the huge trust that is placed in those mm. technologies and the extent to which human common sense is sometimes being replaced by them. Rob? Yeah, Kanta, I was wondering if, if there are any there's any speculative fiction or even movies that you think does a better job of capturing the AI scenarios that you think are most likely. Yes, it's really interesting one. One scenario that is obviously, you know, extrapolated into the, the ridiculous, but I still think is worth thinking about is depicted in Wally which touches upon two really interesting things. And one is the idea of over pollution, of humans having destroyed Earth, 
and then trying to fix it using technology. So you have the little robot Wally trying by his little self to tidy up these massive landscapes of waste that humans have created. I think that is a very important message when thinking through technological fixes to things that we have done in the past. The other one is how dependent the humans depicted in the film are on technology, because they're all these blobs who never come out of their chair and always sit in front of a screen. And That's quite that accurate was, in that respect then. And this was before <laughs> the invention of the smartphone. So yes, absolutely. Kanta, yeah. thank you. Rob, let's turn to you and your wonderful book, Never Home Alone. Nothing to do with the movie. Very different, this one, isn't it? Because you describe all the different species that live alongside us. And despite our sometimes ruthless efforts to get rid of them, they're still there. Well, listener Alan Duffy has got a question for you. He wants to know about the ants that keep invading his home and what he can do about them. He says, are these just benign freeloaders, though, or are they seriously unwanted guests? Where do you stand on ants at home? In most people's houses, they're just an interesting part of the natural world that's walking in. And in most cases, the pesticides you would use to kill them are, are far less benign uh, than are the ants themselves. When you mention this whole business about cleaning products, though, can we actually see the impact? Well, I mean, so I think we're aware of some of the ways we, we change the habitats around us. We're aware of when the birds change. We no longer hear the same sounds. We're aware, aware of when the plants change. We don't see the same flowers. Hidden in those stories is the fact that we're fundamentally changing how all these pieces of nature work together. Most of the food that animals in cities are eating is actually coming from human waste streams. And so if you pick up an ant in New York City and Manhattan, most of its carbon molecules actually come from corn syrup and from eating animals that have been fed corn. But the other thing that we know is that we're triggering totally different evolutionary scenarios. But what we now know is that where evolution proceeds most quickly are in, in habitats that are becoming ever bigger and where the selection pressures are really strong. And that's exactly what we've created in cities. And so there's an underground mosquito in the tube in London that appears to be part of a lineage that's specialized on tubes and subways. The rats in the south end of Manhattan are diverging from the ones in the north end of Manhattan. And then the bacteria and other smaller species are evolving even more rapidly. And so they evolve in response to an individual course of antibiotics. I think we look outside and we see something that seems static, but in fact, this evolutionary story is, is faster than it's, than, it's, than it's been in a long time in many ways. Are the houses that we're making these days a bit too clean for our own good? Yeah, so that, that's for sure right. So we're, we're coming to understand that we need exposure to certain species to be healthy. Now, which species we need to be exposed to is a very complex question because it's at the interface of the immune system. But we do see that as people spend more and more time inside and their houses are more and more clean, that there are a whole series of broader immune problems that arise. And so these are skin problems, it's gut problems, it's some brain inflammation problems that seem to be associated with these changes. And so there's been a push now to think about well, what do we need to bring back into our daily lives to restore some kind of balance? And it's a tricky question. And what the companies want to do is to give you a pill that has the particular microbe you, we need. What some ecologists want to do is to imagine restoring more biodiversity to our daily worlds and, and getting ourselves outside more. And so it's a tricky time. We know there's a problem, but the solution is not fully apparent yet. No danger of my house being too clean. 
<laughs> if uh, if everyone was like me, what microbes would be taking over first? I mean, what what if we all stopped obsessively cleaning would dominate? Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the opposite question first. And so this will go to Colin's uh, work, which is that the International Space Station is a perfect experiment in what happens if you try to seal everything out and clean really well. And in that environment, you mostly get microbes associated with the body. The body's constantly falling apart. And so the International Space Station is full of those microbes. And then you get extreme loving microbes. And so things that can grow on metal, that can grow on plastic. At one point, the windows on the mirror, the Russian space station, were so covered in fungus that they could no longer see outside. And so the, the, the universe was obscured by the grandeur of life. The other extreme is what happens if you open your windows? What happens if you live in a house that has more continuity with the outside world? Well, soil microbes come in, leaf microbes come in, the insects that come in bring in microbes. By and large, those are either benign or beneficial sorts of species. Thanks, Rob. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Now it's that time where we take our wonderful panellists and we pit them against each other in a battle of wits, competing for a prize beyond price, and that is the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award. The month of March marks Women in History Month, so that's going to be our theme, and our teams are Cantor and Rob, Team 1, Colin and Lou, Team 2. You are allowed, of course, to confer, but you mustn't try to put off the opposition. There's no naughty tactics allowed here. So question one. This is for Team 1, Cantor and Rob. As of November 2021, to the nearest 10, how many female astronauts have undertaken a space flight? Is it A, 250? Is it B, 100? Or C, 50? What do you think? Hmm. I'm, I'm guessing it's not more than 50, probably. Yeah, I would agree on that. Going 50? Yep. Quite right, yep. There have been 502 men and 50 women so far. The longest spacewalk yet, a whopping nine hours though. Now that accolade does go to a woman that was pioneered by Susan Helms in 2001. I could say helmed by Susan Helms in 2001. And also, another claim to fame, Naked Scientist contributor Jessica Meyer ended up walking in space. So a lot of big names appear here on The Naked Scientists. OK, <laughs> over to you. Question two for Team Two. One of the unsung mm-hmm. heroes of paleontology is Mary Anning. And in 1811, she found a fossil unlike any other that had been seen before. This was in Lyme Regis. It was 5.2 metres long. But was it a pterodactyl, a megalodon or an ichthyosaur? What do you reckon, Colin and Lou? Pretty confident it's an ichthyosaur. I've been down to the Jurassic Coast before, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I think I remember it's an ichthyosaur. Solid, confident answer, and you're absolutely right. It, it is indeed ichthyosaur. That word means fish lizard. These were the reptile inhabitants of the seas. Pterosaurs, oh, of course, yeah. glided in the air. Dinosaurs were walking on the land all around mm. at the same time. 
Ichthyosaurs looked like modern-day dolphins a bit, except they had absolutely massive teeth. The smallest one, though, about one metre long. The biggest one, a Shinosaurus, wonderful name, 23 metres in length. But law listeners to the programme will remember us reporting just last month about the largest ichthyosaur specimen that's now been found in Britain. It was over 10 metres long, so pretty fearsome beast. Right, we're level-pegging both teams on a point apiece onto round two. This is on Nobel Prizes. One of our team members uh, might have an advantage here question one this is for team one canter and rob four women have won nobel prizes in physics since 1901 andrea gez is the latest female to be awarded the prize she got that in 2020 but what did she discover was it the black hole at the center of the milky way was it the creation of a chirped pulse amplification also known as a cpa or did she discover the mass of a neutrino what do you think I'm just going to be guessing, Kanta. Any ideas? I I think it was black hole work that she did. You going black hole? Yes, Andrea Gez received the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics alongside Roger Penrose and Reinhard Gensel for their work on black holes. Her work and Gensel's work provided the most solid evidence yet for the existence of a supermassive black hole. We call it Sagittarius A star. It's ironic you put a star on a black hole name, but that's at the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. Right, well done to you. Another point. Over to Team 2, who are Colin and Lou. Marie Curie won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the highly radioactive elements radium and polonium. But which of these would give you the biggest dose of radiation if you had one? A, living in Cornwall. B, a chest X-ray. Or C, a bag of Brazil nuts. Biggest dose of radiation. There's quite a lot of mines and stuff down in Cornwall. There's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff down there that could that could be give you a lot of a dose of radiation. So you'd think probably it wouldn't be the chest X-ray, right? That's the so it's either the Brazil nuts or or, or, or Cornwall. What do you reckon, Lou? Brazil nuts have a lot of selenium, but I don't know what that has to do with uh, radioactivity. Uh, yeah, I would have to go with the the first answer. Quite right. Living in Cornwall is the biggest risk factor on that list, but they're not all nuts, if you excuse my pun. The average UK citizen gets about 2.7 millisieverts, which is a, a measure of radiation dose, per year, just from natural sources. A chest X-ray and a bag of Brazil nuts actually give you about the same dose of radiation. It's about 0.01 millisievert. But here's the kicker. If you live in Cornwall, your dose annually is about 6.9 millisieverts, so nearly three times your background exposure across the UK. And that puts you on par with having an annual chest CT scan, which is a very big dose of radiation. And back to Team 1, who are Cantor and Rob for round three. Question one, Sylvia Earle was a pioneer of ocean exploration and she was the first hero for the planet to be named by Time magazine. She accrued over 6,000 hours underwater. But which of these is the only true fact about scuba diving? A, after 10 metres down, you can't see yellow or red. B, nitrogen narcosis, otherwise known as the bends, kicks in at 10 metres underwater. And the buoyancy of air in a scuba tank means that divers need a weight belt to hold them down underwater. Which is the true answer from those three? So as a scuba diver, (laughs) I know that nitrogen narcosis doesn't necessarily kick in at 10 metres. It's not guaranteed and it can uh, be delayed till much later. And it's not the air in the tank, but mostly the air in your lungs and suit that creates the buoyancy. So what does that leave us with the first one? 
10 meters seems very early to stop seeing colors. You're going to have to pick one. Let's go with the nitrogen narcosis. The answer is actually A. You can't see yellows and reds, at least properly, once you get more than 10 meters underwater. You all appear to be bleeding a black color. And the reason for this is that water strongly absorbs light at the red end of the spectrum. The bond between water molecules is strongly attenuating of red wavelengths. And so as you go further underwater, you remove more and more red light from the light that's coming through the water. And this means there's virtually no red light left to bounce back at your eye from the red in your blood, making anything that's that color look black. Nitrogen narcosis does kick in from about 20 metres, really. I mean, obviously you can say, and you're, you're sort of, of right there, Cantor, that as soon as you go underwater, you're beginning to dissolve more nitrogen in your bloodstream. But most people are all right until they get to at least 20 metres. And you are quite right with your physics. The air in a scuba tank is very heavily compressed, which means it actually weighs more than the water that the tank is pushing out of the way. So it's actually negatively buoyant. In other words, it sinks. Team that was two. really good science. Team two, <laughs> you may, Colin and Lou, have a chance to clinch this one. Jane Goodall is best known, of course, for her time spent studying chimpanzee families. But what name other than troop do we give to a group of baboons? Is it A, a flange, B, a sleuth, or C, a coalition? Group of baboons, which are those three? So, Lou, there's a famous Rowan Atkinson sketch where he calls them a flange of baboons. And I think they actually adopted the name flange from the Rowan Atkinson sketch. And let's go with it. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I love the logic that Rowan Atkinson educates the world in science. Very, very good. It is a flange. Yep, it's a flange of baboons. It is a sleuth of bears. And the coalition? Bears. Any takers? Cheaters. Cheetah, I see. Yeah, I, I think it should be a deception of cheetahs myself, but that's just me. <laughs> so that means you guys got three out of three, and the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week award goes to Team Two. Very well done, Colin and Lou. Let's give them a round of applause. Mainly Colin. In this episode, I'm joined by four super scientists who are answering all your science questions and sharing their expertise. I have with me AI expert Cantor Dihull, best biologist Rob Dunn, cosmic astronomy writer Colin Stewart and Nobel laureate Lou Ignaro. Now, back to our mystery sound. Remember, it sounds like this. I also told you you'll only hear this in one place in the UK, and here's your third clue. Without this, the Avengers would not be able to assemble and the Marvel Cinematic Universe would have nowhere to begin. Rob, anything in mind? Well, I had a guess until the clue, and it totally threw me off. But I think it's some kind of orthopteran, so Katie Day Cricket, uh, a relative. Okay, so you're going for animal. Yes. We'll add that one to the list. Now, Colin, you've got a book out at the moment. It's on time travel, one of your 19 tomes. David's got a question for you. David says, in reality, there are a multitude of issues with the prospect of time travel. But if we think about how it's represented in the movies, would it be possible to travel in time while keeping in the same position in space? Or are space and time too intrinsically linked? As far as we know, travelling through time does also require travelling through space. So we know of two 
two ways you can travel into Earth's future and, and potentially one way you can go backwards, but all of them require traveling through space. So it's not a kind of TARDIS situation where you, you get in a machine, you close the door, and then you open it and you're in exactly the same place. You physically have to move through space in order to, to move through time. You're saying then that we could travel in time, but we would have to move in the course of doing it. But But returning to that point, if we move and something gets in the way in the process, so say you flew across our solar system and you cross the orbit of various planets, you're going to coincide in space and time, literally, as well as metaphorically, with those objects. So do you end up just spaghettified? Uh, you'd be forward in time, but then you'd also be minced up. I'm not spaghettified, but if you're, any object can be given four coordinates, right? Three space coordinates and one time coordinate. So the chair I'm sitting in is, has three, three dimensions in space and one of time. If I move the chair tomorrow, then it's not it's no longer there. So if any any two objects share those four coordinates, they're gonna be they're gonna hit each other. So yeah, if you if you happen to to go on your big loop around space to achieve your time travel and you crash into Mars, then well then you crash into Mars. Of course there is one other way that we can deform or distort the passage of time, and that's by either going very, very fast or going near things which are very, very massive. And both both effects actually are happening very visibly on Earth right now, because if we didn't take into account the fact that Earth's gravity distorts time, our GPS system wouldn't work. They're the two ways of travelling into the future that are kind of alluded to. So you've got two options. Like you say, go fast and return to the Earth, and you'll realise that more time has passed on the Earth than you think. So you just skip to head into the future. But again, that requires you to move through space. Or you go and hang out near something really massive like a black hole uh, and then return to the Earth and you and you have the same the same effect. But that still requires you to leave the Earth and, and come back. But yes, the, with the GPS satellites, that's the, the best piece of evidence I can give that, that time travel is real. Every time you push that button on your Maps app on your phone that brings up that blue dot, you're using the physics of time travel. Because as you say, the, the system works because your phone receives a signal from the satellites in, in the GPS but to do that, you need three or four satellites and it works out how long it's taken to arrive at your phone. And the quicker it arrives, the nearer you are to that particular satellite. But to do that, the satellites have to have, uh, have to timestamp the signal, right? To, so you know how long it's taken. So they have atomic clocks on board that keep track of time. But time is running at a different rate for them. As you said, for two reasons. One, they're traveling at speed. And two, they're slightly further outside Earth's gravitational field than we are down here. So we have to artificially change the time on board those clocks to haul them back into our uh, our time. If we didn't do that, the blue dot on your phone would be out by 10 kilometers in one day. So people don't always buy this time dilation. You know, when they hear it for the first time, they say, oh, it's just a gimmick, right? It can't be real. But you rely on it every time you press the button on your phone. I have with me our four scientific specialists, Cantor Dihal, Rob Dunn, Colin Stewart and Lou Ignaro, who are sharing their nuggets of knowledge and answering all your questions. Now we've got our fourth and final clue to our mystery sound competition. I told you it sounds like this. That you'll only hear this in one location in the UK. Without it, the Avengers would never have assembled. And now for your fourth clue... France is busy prepping the biggest one of these in the world and it should run up in 2025. Colin, your chance yeah, to in, have a stab, I'm what in, do you reckon? I'm, it's a tokamak, a fusion machine. You're going tokamak. We'll put that one on the list as well. Now, Lou, there was an interesting headline about nasal sprays for nitric oxide. Tell us more. 
Well, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much more can be told until, you know, these experiments and trials are, are really completed. First, let me start by explaining, really, that NO, or nitric oxide, is a gas. And it's a very unstable gas. So in the presence of the oxygen in the air, the half-life of nitric oxide is a second or so. So you cannot put nitric oxide gas into a nasal spray and, and deliver nitric oxide. What you'll deliver, actually, is nitrogen dioxide, which is not too healthy for you. Now, there are a, no, a number of small companies trying to develop chemicals like nitrites and nitrates, the same sorts of molecules found in green leafy vegetables and beets and beet juice and so on. If you put that in a nasal spray and you spray it, then the nitrite and the nitrate can somewhat be converted to nitric oxide, which you can then inhale. But, you know, to the best of my knowledge, this is not an effective way to deliver pure NO into your lungs. The only way we know how to do that is to inhale nitric oxide. And that's where the ideas of the nasal spray came. For 20 years in the clinic, there are gadgets that can produce nitric oxide as needed, mix it with the air, and the patients breathe it in, and, and it works. It, it, the nitric oxide gas gets into the lungs, and this has been used to treat infants, newborns with persistent pulmonary hypertension and save their lives. Also, this kind of inhaled nitric oxide has been successful in treating COVID. There have been obviously a lot of observations that people who have heart disease and high blood pressure tend to come off worse. Do you think that your molecule nitric oxide is bound up in that observation and the fact that people are, are trying this as one way to minimize the impact of COVID it, it is, yes. is linked as well. Yes, there's no question about it. First of all, and I'll make it very brief, in, in COVID, the problem is that the virus, the coronavirus or strains of it, variants of it, all must get into the lungs. They attach to the alveoli where there's oxygen exchange and blood flow. And, 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 and these viruses destroy the inner linings of the arteries. That's called the endothelial lining. Those are the cells that make nitric oxide. We make nitric oxide everywhere, but in our lungs we make it for several reasons. One, to dilate the arteries so that more blood flows through the lungs, therefore can pick up more oxygen. But nitric oxide is also a fantastic antiviral agent. Nitric oxide will destroy many different viruses, especially the coronavirus, in the lungs and prevent their spread. Also, as you pointed out, Nitric oxide deficiency is associated with all kinds of cardiovascular diseases, coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis in other parts uh, uh, of the body, and so on. It's all due to a decrease in, in NO. So if you decrease it further, you're going to have problems. So patients with COVID who have some cardiovascular problems, well, their cardiovascular problems are going to get a lot worse. Thank you for clearing that one up. Cantor, let's come back to you. We've talked about AI a lot through the programme. What we haven't done is to, is to ask you about manifestations of AI that may not be obviously visible to us but are working behind the scenes. Anything that you can throw into the mix? I wonder how many people are aware, for example, of the 
ways in which AI-related software and algorithms work in supermarkets. So my favorite example in this comes from um, Anna Fry and her book on algorithms. Uh, Tesco, which for my American fellow panelists is one of the biggest supermarkets in the UK, has been collecting data on what people buy in the supermarket for decades and has been using that information to identify trends. So, for example, people who buy this are also more likely to buy that. And therefore, if you put this on offer but not but raise the price of the other one, then you might end up selling more and, and making more of a profit. Or, oh, maybe we should put this product closer to that product on the shelves because people always buy them together. And so my favorite example, which Hannah Fry described, was when they started combining this with offering mortgages and uh, loans. And they discovered the fact that people who buy fresh fennel are more likely not to default on their loans. <laughs> Does she offer any kind of reasoning why? Or is it just that very middle class people who are probably better off are buying fennel and they've probably got a bigger bank balance? That's probably a very large part of it. I mean, there's lots of things coming together here about people being middle class and being traditionally middle class, you know, having grown up with knowing what fennel is and how you use it and, and having enough time to cook it, enough money to purchase it. So, yes, lots of assumptions about class background ethnicity come together here that influence those correlations. Those are kinds of discoveries that these algorithms make that can reveal biases or assumptions that we didn't even have or that we didn't know we had, but that um, become extremely stark when you just run the numbers on them. So your bank might in future be asking you what's in your cookbook before they approve your mortgage. Thanks for that one. Now, Rob, let's come back to you. And um, it sounds like something out of a science fiction horror but uh, we humans are, are basically passengers in our own bodies, aren't we? We, we are more microbe than human, really. Uh, we're really a collective. And so all of our, our the attributes of our bodies that we think of as the function of our own cells really are more often of collaborations and antagonisms between our cells and the microbes on our skin, the microbes in our guts, the mites that live on our faces and all over our bodies. And this is inconspicuous when we look at each other with our eyes. But if you close your eyes and you sniff people, almost all the smells of humans are microbial. And so to the extent that you love the smell of your partner, you hate the smell of your partner, I hope you don't hate the smell of your partner, but if you do, it's really a, a very direct manifestation of this cooperative between our cells and these microbial cells. I interviewed a researcher for the journal eLife a few years ago when he published this paper. And when I first read it, I thought it couldn't be for real. And he did a study where basically they had cameras set up to watch two people meeting each other. One was in on it. Other people just thought they were coming to be interviewed about something random. And they had rigged these people up with a system to measure when they sniffed. And mm. some of the time, the interviewer that they were meeting shook their hands. And other times, they purposefully didn't shake their hands. And the hand that had been shaken spent significantly longer in front of the person's face, coinciding with sniffing, 
than yeah. at other times in the interview. And he said it was really funny because he presented this at a conference and he said he then went to the kind of the party in the evening, the, the meet and greet, get to know each other, time welcome drinks. And he said and everyone was walking around with their hands in their pockets because no one wanted to shake hands. I, I mean, th- this relates to, to what I think is like one of the biggest mysteries in, of, of Earth. It's on, on par with the, the pyramids in Egypt, which is the human armpit. And so we have these glands in the human armpit called apocrine glands. And the only thing they do, and this is very clear, is they feed particular microbes. And when they feed those microbes, those microbes metabolize the food that our bodies give them. And that's what armpit odor comes from. And in non-human primates, we know that aroma is super important in signaling between individuals. Gorillas can tell each other apart by sniffing. And, And so it's this whole organ that it was very key evolutionarily and that we've now tried to hide in any way that we can. Yeah, well, that's exactly what was on the tip of my tongue as you were saying that. Why have we evolved then to try and hide it? Why do we go to enormous efforts to mask this stuff? Is that just learned behaviour? A big part of it's the pharmaceutical, the sort of cream and and antiperspirant industry, which has sold us on the idea that that we need those products. A big part of the globe has a version of these apocrine glands that's sealed shut. It's a single gene difference. And so this is true in most of China. But, but the antiperspirant companies have found that they can sell antiperspirant to those people just by convincing them that they might smell. But also, I think our armpits betray our emotional status. They betray our health. And, and so you might imagine that there's some advantage socially to hiding what's being said there. Amazing. There you go. Now, Colin, let's come back to you. We've got this question which concerns the relationship between mass and energy it's about dark matter from Pajescu and he says is dark matter and dark energy related in the same way that matter and energy are related of course we know that e equals mc squared Einstein's famous equation that where energy and mass are interchangeable can the same be said for dark matter and dark energy no and so you're right to say that normal mass and energy are two sides of the same coin you can convert one into the other whereas dark matter and dark energy appear to be polar opposites. They're doing very different things. So dark matter is like a glue that helps stick things in the universe together, like a galaxy, for example, whereas dark energy seems to be something that's doing the opposite, not binding things together, but pushing things apart. So uh, around the same time that uh, Viagra came out, we discovered that the acceleration of the universe is accelerating. And so there's something between galaxies that seem to be pushing it apart. So we call these things respectively dark matter and dark energy, but I mean, really they're placeholders for our ignorance. We don't know what either of those two things are. We just we just see the effects they seem to be having on the universe. Yes, indeed. And I did actually meet the guys that weighed the universe and, and worked out that things were not just getting bigger, but getting bigger faster. And we still don't know the mystery behind that, do we? Because as space makes more space and distances become greater, it's almost as though it makes more dark energy. So it's something of an enigma, isn't it? Well, this is another key difference between dark matter and dark energy. Dark matter seems to be, at least the majority verdict is, that it is a physical thing, right? It is a substance that exists in space, whereas the dark energy seems to be, as as you alluded to, a, a kind of property of space itself. As space stretches, it becomes more and more dominant. So it's, yeah, yet another reason why. Um, the dark matter and dark energy seem to be different things. The only thing they have in common is that dark word, and that, that that's basically our ignorance. One cynic said to me that dark is the word that physicists put in front of things to make them sound sexier so you get more grant money. But I'm sure that's that's not true. 
The person who came up with the phrase dark matter was Fritz Zwicky back in the 1930s. Knowing how eccentric he was, I can't imagine he was doing that. But dark energy, yeah, maybe they just thought it could sound anything. Well, from inflation of the universe down to inflation of other tissue, we've been talking with you, Lou, discoverer of the effect of nitric oxide in the body that ultimately gave rise to Viagra and and your winning of the Nobel Prize for achieving that. What can you tell us about about what makes a, a Nobel laureate? Because you must have met quite a lot of your fellow laureates over the years. Is is it is it quite a convivial club? You know, I can only tell you about myself. And for me, it was a, a really uh, incredible roller coaster ride. My, my parents were immigrants from Italy. They, they moved to New York where they met. They got married. I came along. My parents never went to school, completely uneducated. And so that trickled down on me because when I started elementary school, I didn't know that much. My English was very poor. My Italian was good. But nevertheless, because of my passion and motivation to learn, I was able to continue and and raise my grades through elementary school. And I had a great passion for science. Why? I loved chemistry. I liked making firecrackers. I liked making bombs, which I made quite a few of. Uh, I loved biology. I liked dissecting animals I found outside and noticed how the, the their organs resembled the uh, human organs, which I used to look at from an anatomy book. But to make a long story short, I never lost my passion and interest for science. And I kept raising all kinds of questions. The one question I raised in high school, for example, very importantly was, how come so many of my friends and relatives die of cardiovascular disease when they're 50 and others just live on and on and on and never get sick? So I thought that maybe, just maybe, the healthy people produce some molecule in the body that protects them against heart disease. And the ones who get sick are, are not as lucky and they don't make enough or any at all. Well, I kept it in my mind as I was going through my studies. One thing led to another. We did some experiments and we were able to, to find that molecule. And that molecule was nitric oxide. But to get to that point, I had to struggle. Uh, I remember a quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said that, do not go where the path may lead, but instead uh, go where there is no path and create a trail. Thank you, Lou. And it's nice to finish on a big scientific bang with someone who's won a Nobel Prize for some pretty outstanding work. Well, before we go, we need to reveal to you what on earth that mystery sound we've been teasing you with across the programme actually is. Did you guess? Well, we've always told you this technology is about 30 years away. Producer Harry also wanted me to read out another clue that might help if you haven't quite got there. If you perfect this, as Otto Octavius once did, you might feel compelled to say, the power of the sun is in the palm of my hands. Well, he's obviously been catching up on his superhero movies, hasn't he? Your final guesses? Well, the answer is, this is a tokamak fusion reactor starting up. So what's a tokamak? Well, whereas fission is the process that's probably more familiar to the majority of us, and it's the splitting of atoms into smaller daughter nuclei, releasing energy in the process. Fusion is the joining together of lighter elements to make heavier ones. And during that process, some of the mass is actually released as energy, because remember, as Einstein told us, 
E equals MC squared. Fusion is largely regarded as a better long-term bet for our energy provision because not only are the materials it runs from much more abundant, but it should ultimately be safer and produce lower levels of radioactive waste. The biggest reactor at the moment is JET, which is in Oxford, but the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, otherwise known as ITER, is set to surpass that, and we expect the first experiments to be taking place in 2025. So actually, not 30 years, just around the corner. And of course, both Doc Ock and Iron Man use nuclear fusion to power their efforts for good and bad in the Marvel Universe. That is genuinely it for this week. Thank you very much for listening and also for sending in your questions. And thanks to our panel, who are Cantor, Rob, Colin and Lou. And do join us again at the same time next week, of course, when we're going to be exploring the world of cyber security. Will the wars of tomorrow be fought online rather than on the battlefield? And with what's happening in Russia, that's gone right up the agenda. And if you want to send us some questions in the meantime, though, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. And from all of us here on the team, thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.